This morning's scripture is uh, Judges chapter 9, verses 1 to 24. It can be found on page 208 in your pew Bibles. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest, of Jer- the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went out and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me, king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dwelt, uh, dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem. Because he is your relative, if you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out, of, out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. This is God's word. invite you to keep your Bibles open to Judges chapter 9. We are 
in-between series this morning as we finished up Exodus last week and next Sunday, Pastor Bruce is going to start a short series uh, on being the church. And so we're in Judges 9 this morning and let's pray as we look uh, together at what God says here. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. Uh, Even a sobering passage uh, like this, in it you are speaking And so we pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I became a Christian in 1996. And one thing that has surprised me uh, over the 20-plus years later is how hard holiness still is. How hard holiness still is. You would think that Obeying God and following Him would get easier over time. And obviously, it has in all sorts of ways. But I am amazed at how selfish and arrogant and unholy my heart and life can still be, even after knowing Jesus for over 20 years. I still want things to go my way. I still want to be right. And I want everybody to know that I am right. I still want to make the rules. I find myself doing that all the time. I want to make the rules, but I I only want to follow them if they're convenient to me. I want to reserve the right to revise the rules that I make when I need to do so. So in other words, even after all of these years of following Christ, I find that in my heart, I still want to be king. I still want to be in charge, to rule my life, my world, my way. And I think there is within all of our hearts a subtle but seemingly insatiable desire to be the king. Well, this morning we're going to consider the tale of two kings. Israel's quote-unquote first king, whose story we're going to spend most of our time in, and then Israel's last and true king, the Lord Jesus, and to see what this comparison and contrast might have to say to us and our own desires to be king. Now, when we talk about Israel's first king, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, we're usually talking about Saul. Uh, from 1 Samuel. And that's technically correct. He is the first king God had anything to say about for Israel. But long before Saul, a handful of Israelites gathered together in the ancient city of Shechem to take this young, ambitious man named Abimelech and to anoint him as king of Israel. And this is his story here in Judges 9. Now, the book of Judges takes place a few generations after uh, the book of Exodus, which we just finished going through last week. And at this point in the story, Israel is finally now in the land. In Exodus, they were in uh, in slavery and then in the wilderness. Now they're actually in the land. Joshua, who was Moses' right-hand man, uh, successfully led them into the land. They, They drove out their enemies they, they conquered it and settled it, and things seemed to be going well for them at first. The book of Joshua concludes with this great covenant renewal ceremony 
<clears throat> so you have the, the first generation that's now in the land, and they are committing themselves to the very things their forefathers committed themselves to in the wilderness when God made his covenant with them. It looks like this is, this is good. This is how it's supposed to be. But the book of Judges takes a sharp turn south, plunging us really into one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. You know, if, if Hollywood were to try and make a film of the book of Judges, your kids probably wouldn't be permitted to see it. I mean, it would have an R rating uh, with what you find in this story of what God's people are capable of doing. And the trouble comes from two angles. First, that Israel fails to completely drive out the inhabitants of the land, and meaning that the idolatrous influence remains. But second, and more importantly, uh, as soon as Joshua and his generation die, Israel quickly forgets the Lord and what he's done for them. Judges 2 verse 10 says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They died, Joshua and his generation. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. How fragile is our faith when we fail to pass it on to the next generation? You're just two generations out of Egypt and the people have forgotten what the Lord has done. Instead of covenant faithfulness marking God's people, instead, the drumbeat of the book of Judges is this refrain, once again, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Once again, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it just goes on and on again. Or the way the conclusion of the book puts it, everyone did what was right in his own sight which is saying the same thing in a different way. Everyone becomes a law to themselves, their own personal king. But God remains on his throne, even if his people don't acknowledge it. And he remains committed to his people, even if they don't acknowledge him, such that he, he doesn't let them wander off in disobedience for very long. And so the book of Judges kind of unfolds in, in what becomes this cycle. The, the story repeats over and over again. This cycle of Israel disobeying God by doing what's right in their own eyes and indulging in the idolatry of their neighbors. Then God disciplining them by giving them over to their foreign nations who conquer them. Then the people crying out for a deliverer and God, in his mercy, giving them one, giving a judge, not the kind of judge that wears a black robe and carries a gavel, but a leader who brings justice. That's the kind of judge you see in this book. But as soon as that judge dies, the whole cycle starts over again. Israel disobeys God. God disciplines them. They cry out for a deliverer. He comes. Then he dies. Rinse, slather, and repeat, whatever. And you, you can see a great summary of that in chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. And so, so that's the story of Judges. And it's in the middle of this tragedy of Israel's history that we find this story of Abimelech, who was the son of Gideon, 
Gideon, of course, is one of the famous judges, right? He's the one whom God called to deliver Israel from the Midianites and, and not to do it with a great huge army, but with just 300 people so that God would unambiguously get the credit for this victory. That's Gideon. Gideon had a lot of sons. So Judges chapter 8 verses 30 to 32 reads, Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So Gideon was this notable hero of Israel. He had lots of sons, and then he died. And what happens when a judge dies? The cycle starts over. And so you read in verse 33, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berit their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. So this doesn't look good. This is not a good start to the next chapter of the story. But it's about to get a lot worse. And what we see here is what happens when the desire to be king, the desire to be in charge, is followed with unholy abandon. Throw all caution to the wind, no holds barred, I will be king. And so look again at chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, which introduce the story of Abimelech and show us the idolatry of wanting to be king. That's really the only word we can use to describe what we see here, the idolatry of wanting to be king. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in, all the ear, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in all the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his house, his father's house at Orpha, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beit Milo. And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem, the same place where Israel had previously renewed their covenant with Yahweh under Joshua. So, so what is it that could drive somebody to do this? To manipulate his mother's family in order to form a conspiracy with the leaders of a city who will supply him with the means of brutally murdering all of his brothers. What, 
What could cause somebody to do something so vicious and reckless? I want to be king. I want to be king. I want to be king. That's what drives him. So how do, how do you get to that point? How does somebody get to that point? Well, on the one hand, it's clearly idolatry, Israel's idolatry. And that's one of the things that the narrator emphasizes here, that, that as soon as Gideon dies, the people are turning again and worshiping the false gods of their neighbors. But on the other hand, the problem with Abimelech and with Shechem is not really Baal, this false god. It is idolatry. That's clearly the problem. But it's not so much the glory of Baal that Abimelech is after. The problem, it's not the, it's not the cult of Baal. It is really the cult of Abimelech that drives his plot. It's the glory, not of this false god, but the glory of himself, his own power and glory, even if it means taking out everybody else in between. That's what drives Abimelech. The worship of self, to want to be king and to do anything to get that is idolatry. It's replacing God with me. That's what we see in this story. And, and this seems like an extreme example of that. You know, you want something so bad you're willing to kill 70 other of your own family. To, yes, that's an extreme example. It is. And yet, that same treasonous bent towards selfish ambition hides in all of our hearts. Hides in all of our hearts. If we're honest, we want people to recognize our greatness and respond accordingly. That's what we want. A good day at work is when I've been recognized as contributing. Uh, We want what we want, and we want others to make it happen. To paraphrase Paul Tripp, I want to eat barbecue three times a day, morning, noon, and night. I want to drive on roads paid for by other citizens who choose not to use them. I want a wife who says, of course, Brandon, I agree with you. I live for the glory that is you. I want children who say, I will forthwith go and obey father, O wise father I've been given. I want neighbors who move into the neighborhood just because I'm there. I want, I want, I want, I want. We want the world to revolve around us and we want others to get on, to get with the program, to recognize the glory that is us and respond accordingly. And that desire, if left unchecked, can lead to some ugly attitudes and behaviors. Whether it's the subtle ways that we'll manipulate somebody's praise or the ambition that that drives us to to make much of our career at the expense of, of our family, or our children, or our marriage, or our personal integrity. The ambition that drives us to spend money that we don't have on things we don't need because of how it makes us feel to own them, even though we don't technically own them. 
the ambition that drives people to conquer something. Pornography, alcohol abuse, anything that gives somebody a semblance of being in control, even if just for a moment, so that I can feel like a king. My glory, my way. So I think the same idolatrous bent is in all of our hearts. But really, when you, when you look at Abimelech's story, I think the grossest part of his idolatry is that it comes by taking advantage of God's salvation of his people from Midian. So before God had raised up Gideon, Abimelech's dad, Israel was occupied territory. They were under oppression from Midian. They were not free to go about and do whatever. When we first meet Gideon, he's hiding, treading out grain in, in, in a secret place because he's afraid. So that's the world Gideon grew up in. And God uses Gideon to deliver Israel from Midian. And the reality is Abimelech's little conspiracy of, of trying to kind of create a kingdom around himself, that wouldn't even be possible had God not just saved Israel from Midian. And so it's only because of God's gracious salvation that Abimelech can even try to become king. He uses God's salvation as a chance not to respond in gratitude or repentance or devoted service to Yahweh for all that he's done. Rather, he uses God's salvation as a chance to make his move for the throne. Now's my opportunity. He exploits the goodness of God for his own personal gain. That's the grossest part of his idolatry. It reminds me of um, Uncle Andrew's character in the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the magician's nephew book. So Uncle Andrew's transported to Narnia before it's even Narnia, where he and those with him witness the creation of this world as Aslan the lion sings Narnia into existence. And when a small bar that's ripped off of a lamppost in London ends up coming there with them and gets planted in the soil of Narnia and grows into a new lamppost, Uncle Andrew, realizing what's going on here, shouts, I have discovered a world where everything is bursting with life and growth. The commercial possibilities of this country are unbounded. Bring a few old bits of scrap iron here, bury them, and they come up as brand new railway engines, battleships, anything you please. They'll cost nothing, and I can sell them in England. I shall be a millionaire. The first thing is to get that brute shot. And by brute... He's referring to the very lion whose own goodness and power just brought this world into creation, lamppost and all. He uses the goodness of the creator as an opportunity for personal gain. He exploits God's salvation. And how easy is that for us to do? To take this goodness and mercy we've received and use it for our own advantage rather than as a motivation for serving God. I use the promise of God's forgiveness as an excuse to sin. He's, he's going to forgive me anyway. And so, you know, I sin. That's exploiting God's grace. Or we use the gift of his salvation 
as an excuse to claim from him whatever I think will make my life happy. I obligate him to whatever material provision I think I deserve because he's a giving God, right? And he owes it to me. We, we turn God's salvation on its head for our own gain instead of his glory rather than responding to his goodness with gratitude and joyful humility and fully devoted service. God's grace becomes a mere door to our own self-glorification. It's our chance to make our move for the throne. And so Abimelech makes his move. He exploits the goodness of God's salvation from Gideon, takes advantage of his family connection to the leaders at Shechem. He, he plays this angle that you don't really want 70 sons of Gideon in charge of you, even though the, 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 uh, being a judge is not a hereditary thing passed down like a kingdom. So the system, he doesn't even understand that. But you don't want 70 leaders. That's bureaucracy run amok. Too much red tape. You want one guy. And by the way, I'm more closely related than them. And, and they take the bait. They take the bait. But not because they're enthralled with Abimelech. Shechem takes the bait because in accordance with their own selfish ambition, they see this is their chance to profit from getting a hometown boy on the throne. So we help him out, we get, you know, a little payback, right? Their hearts inclined to him, for he, they said, he is our brother. That's what's in it for them. And so the revolution begins. The leaders fund Abimelech a single, you know, 70 pieces of silver. So the price of one the price of Abimelech's brothers is one piece of silver per life. That's all it takes to buy the people to take them out. In his ambition to be king, his brothers cease to be people. They become objects. They become obstacles to be removed at whatever cost. And so he slaughters them the way that one slaughters an animal in the Bible, on a single stone, one by one. It's this brutal gut-wrenching, R-rated move. The kind of, I mean, it's almost paganistic. Makes our current political crises in D.C. look like kindergarten. And when he's finished, the leaders of Shechem and Beit Milo crown him as king. And the result is that both Abimelech and Shechem have now committed treason against the true king. This is the idolatry of selfish ambition of wanting to be king but uh, what we're going to see here is that this kind of treason will be met with the king's just judgment and that's what unfolds in the next section of the chapter in verses 7 to 21 we see the foolishness of wanting to be king so it's idolatry to want it it's also really stupid it's foolish to want to be king amid abimelech's murderous campaign verse 5 tells us that there was one brother who got away. One brother who got away. Jotham, the youngest. And when he hears the report of what Abimelech has done and, and of his coronation, that his murderous brother is now king, Jotham takes on the, the mantle of a prophet, basically. He, he goes up to Mount Gerizim, which is the mountain from which Israel's blessings had been read out in Deuteronomy. 
And instead of speaking blessing from that mountain, he issues a curse. A curse on Abimelech and on the people of Shechem. And that curse takes the form of a fable, uh, a story, which is then followed by an interpretation. So the fable, it's really ridiculous. Some trees go out looking for a king, another plant that they can anoint as king over them. And they're so intent on on finding a king to rule over them that they're willing to settle for the most unqualified plant of all, the thorny bramble. So again, think of the picture. How ridiculous. The mighty cedars of Lebanon. So the, the choicest, most beautiful, strongest trees in the Old Testament. The mighty cedars of Lebanon would be so stupid to request a thorn bush to rule over them. It's a laughable picture. It's a cartoon, basically. Uh, The picture of the bramble inviting the tall cedars to take refuge in its shade. I mean, it's, it's stupid. That's the logic of Shechem. That's the point of his parable here. That that Shechem's logic is on par with a tree. And a stupid tree at that. Not a smart tree. A tree driven by selfish ambition instead of good sense. And, and the point of the story comes in verse 16. He's exposing the selfish motives that are underneath both Shechem and Abimelech. And the deadly consequences that it's going to bring forth. He says to them basically, if in good faith you have... Uh, you can align yourself with Abimelech and, and at the same time pay due respect to my father Gideon, who, by the way, rescued you from Midian and gave you peace for 40 years. If you can, can align with Abimelech and, and, and pay him to kill all of my brothers and in integrity still be true to my father's memory, rejoice in your king. Knock yourselves out. But... If not, if this is not in good faith and integrity, and the answer is obvious, then just as the fire was to come out of the bramble, so may fire come out from Abimelech and consume Shechem, and may fire come out from Shechem and consume Abimelech. In other words, if your heart is not true in this situation, this is going to backfire into a mutually assured destruction. You're going to take each other out. And that's exactly what we see happen. And the great irony here, for both Abimelech and for Shechem, is that they're so blinded by their own ambition that they fail to see the obvious threat that the other party poses. Think through the logic here. If Abimelech is so hungry for the throne that he's willing to kill 70 of his own brothers his own flesh and blood, what makes Shechem think that they're any safer if he perceives them as a threat? If he's willing to do that to them, why is Shechem safe? In fact, the the same word, the same Hebrew word is used to describe Abimelech's relationship with with Gideon's sons as it is to the Shechemites. They're both called his brothers. That's That's not a good, they didn't think that one through. And what kind of support does Abimelech really think he's going to receive from a people who are so disloyal from their former leader, the one through whom God rescued them and gave them peace for 40 years, 
If they're so quick to forget what Gideon has done for them, what makes Abimelech think that they'll remain loyal to him? And if Shechem is so interested in having a hometown boy on the throne because of what they think they're going to get out of the deal, what makes Abimelech think that they're not going to turn against him the minute that somebody closer in relationship comes along or someone who offers them a sweeter deal? This is not a good idea. But that's what our drive to be king, to rule things, to run the world, to run my life, that's what it pushes us toward. Stupid decisions that are going to bite us in the end. It's the foolishness of selfish ambition. And, And so how often do we do that? We ignore common sense. Just a little common sense would have changed this story in a big way. We ignore the words of Scripture, the advice of our mentors or our leaders or our friends, the examples of the past, the warnings of friends, and we plunge foolishly into something we hope that's going to give us life and satisfaction and quench our desires and make us feel like a king, all the while ignoring the obvious dangers that disregarding God and choosing my own way poses. Not just to me, but even to those around me. The victims of our self-centered pursuits. You know, the kid at school who views himself as a failure because he was such an easy target for your jokes and insults. The friend whose reputation was destroyed because you, you just couldn't keep that juicy detail to yourself. The wife left without a husband to care for her, or the children without a mother or a father. The business partner or employees left without a pension because of your unethical business deals. As Proverbs 14.12 warns us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We want power. And we'll do the stupidest things to try and get it. It's the foolishness of wanting to be king. But finally, in verses 22 to 57, the rest of the chapter, we see the results of wanting to be king. The result of high treason against the true king in heaven. God's just condemnation played out in Abimelech and Shechem's mutual destruction of each other. It's not a pretty sight. So look, look with me at verses 22 to 24. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Three-year reign, and then everything falls apart. Treason will be met with judgment. God sends an evil spirit, or, or perhaps better understood, a spirit of disaster, an agent of his just judgment who triggers Shechem to betray Abimelech. We, we, we saw how fragile this alliance was. It doesn't take much to light the match 
So, so Shechem first begins to, uh, sets an ambush against Abimelech. And then they form a new conspiracy with a fellow named Gaul, who, you guessed it, claims to be an even closer relationship to Shechem than Abimelech. So you read in verses 26 to 29, it's the proverbial barroom scene where this guy is kind of running his mouth saying, hey, I'm, you, you, you picked Abimelech as your king. Well, I'm a closer relationship and I can beat him up. And why don't you align around me anyway? And everybody's excited about that. Great idea. So much for the loyalty of Shechem. Of course, when Abimelech hears this, and you might say that the match is lit in the consuming fire begins to go forth. He ambushes Gaul and sends him packing. Doesn't take much to to get rid of him. Then he begins to take his vengeance on the city of Shechem. He ambushes the workers in the field, not the soldiers, the people out in the field doing their farming thing. He ambushes them first. And then as they flee to the city, he turns on the city, killing the people there and leaving it. Then those who fled to the tower of Shechem for refuge, he follows them there and gathers wood with all of his worthless thugs and places it around the tower and lights it and kills another thousand people, burning them to death in the tower. But he's on a roll. This rampage feels good. And so he he keeps going and he moves on to the nearby town of Thebets. And he tries to do the same thing as the people in that town see him coming. They take refuge in the tower. Abimelech's like, I got this. No tower is going to keep you from me. So he does the same tactic. He gathers the wood and as he goes to set fire to the door. Look at verse 53. A certain woman threw an upper millstone, which is a a pretty heavy stone that grinds against the bottom stone in a mill, threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Think about the irony of this. The one who killed his 70 brothers on a single stone is now killed himself by a single stone falling on his head. But not to go down as an object of scorn in the annals of Israel's history, like Sisera back in chapter 4, who was killed by a woman, which is a particular slam for brutalizing oppressors like these guys, Abimelech asks his armor-bearer to run him through and finish him off. He doesn't want her to get the credit. The funny thing is, we know the truth. And when the story is retold later in in 2 Samuel 11, she still gets the credit for killing him. So the story concludes in verses 56 to 57. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. No matter how much Shechem thought they stood to gain, no matter how powerful Abimelech thought he was, no matter how much authority either of them thought they had, their selfish ambition blinded them to the fact that God alone is king. And that such treasonous aspirations 
will be met with his just condemnation. And there's a warning here for all of us. Um, There's a penalty for treason against God's kingdom. For seeking to displace him as king and put ourselves there instead or someone else. There's a penalty for the kind of selfish ambition in any form that, that rebels against God's rightful rule and replaces his vision of life for my own or some other vision. For the kind of ambition that withholds from him the glory he deserves and instead steals it for myself. And in God's commitment to justice and peace, he will bring that treason to account. He will. And so if that same self-centered blood runs through our veins, what hope do any of us have? I mean, yeah, we may not be out there plotting our siblings' murder. I hope not. I hope not. But there's so many ways. I mean, you want to see how ugly family can get. Watch what happens when mom and dad dies and the kids have to figure out the will. I've seen so many of those conversations end up in lawsuits. This is not... We're not immune from this kind of stuff, even if it looks different. And so what hope do we have in the face of this kind of selfish ambition and the very deadly result that comes from it? Well, Abimelech may have been Israel's first king. Sham that he was. Thankfully, he was not Israel's last. There's another king I want to look at much more briefly. And that's the last king of Israel, the true king who came to earth some 2,000 years ago in the story of Jesus Christ. And you look at that story, and if you read the story of Jesus over against the story of Abimelech, the contrast is just brilliant in its effect. Jesus did not do what was right in his own eyes, but he faithfully carried out the will of his Father. That's the emphasis of his life. He kept the covenant for everyone. Jesus was the good king, the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. In him, we see none of the so-called politics of Abimelech, the ruthless violence, the hunger for power, the backstabbing vengeance, the irrational assault, the, the worship of other gods. We don't see any of that. Instead, Jesus feeds the hungry. He opens blind eyes. He heals the sick. He frees the captives. He liberates the oppressed. Jesus, though he is very God of God, does not consider his equality with God something to be grasped at, as Paul puts it, something to be exploited for selfish gain, but rather he makes himself nothing. He takes the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When the moment of truth came, when Jesus' kingdom was hanging in the balance, he didn't take out the competition to secure his throne. He didn't sacrifice them one by one on a single stone. 
Rather, through a single sacrifice, he gave his own life as a ransom for many. So he loved the rebel and the insurrectionist to the point of giving his own life, taking their place, taking our place, and rescuing us from the judgment of hell. The complete opposite of Abimelech. He's the good king who who lays his life down for the sheep, who rescues us from the penalty of treason against God. We will trust him. And more than that, he doesn't just rescue us, he also shows us a better way. He also shows us a better way. We don't have to be enslaved to our desires and our ambitions. We don't have to take matters into our own hands and take others down with us. In Jesus, we have the power of the Holy Spirit and the pattern of his self-giving love. A love that motivates us. When we think about it, when we think about who Christ is and what he's done for us, a love that motivates us not to live for ourselves, not to be like Abimelech who used God's salvation as, his, as a door to his own gain, but rather to look at Christ's love and instead of living for ourselves, to live for him in joyful surrender. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. When we're really grasped by the love of Christ and what he's done for us, it controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The more deeply we know Jesus, the more our selfish ambitions are replaced with godly ambitions. Ambition itself is not the problem. It's whose glory we're after. And the more we know Jesus, the more his glory captivates our hearts and replaces our glory. But the longer we know Jesus, the more we realize how far we still have to go. That holiness is hard. That my heart is still dark. That I'm not nearly as godly as I once thought I was. But he is patient. He is gracious and he is enough. Every day, his grace is enough. And because he is enough, he frees us to do the hard work of saying no to self and yes to Jesus every single day. Maybe even, if necessary, every single moment, his grace is enough. If that's the fight we're fighting, his grace is always there. Knowing that Jesus is worth it. Even if saying no to self cost me all my dreams, all the things that I thought I was going to make a name for myself, and all the ways I've hurt others in that pursuit of that name, even if I lose my dreams, my reputation, we know that Jesus is worth it. Paul says in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss, the good and the bad, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
And so may we follow the model of our true king. As Paul puts it, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, hollow pride, but in humility considering others better than ourselves. That's the pattern of Christ. May we follow that pattern and say no to self and yes to Christ as humble servants of the King. Let's pray. Gracious, gracious Father, what an incredible gift it is even to call on you as Father. Lord, we confess that there are so many ways we seek to knock you off the throne and put ourselves there in your place. And Lord, we rationalize every one of them. We think we, we deserve a break or we think that we earned this or, or that we are otherwise afraid of missing out or, or whatever ways we come up to justify our sin, we will do it, Lord. We confess that that is so unworthy of you. But Lord, we praise you that we're not stuck there. We praise you that you haven't left us there in our treasonous rebellion. We praise you that the ugliness of Abimelech, that that the residue is in our hearts, but in Christ we've been changed. And that through your power, not only are we forgiven, but you've given us the grace to say no and to follow you. And God, we pray, we plead for your mercy to follow your lead, to not perform for you so that we can gain for ourselves, but simply to respond to your love. The love of Christ compels us. So God, may we respond to your love this morning as a church, as individuals, and so follow the self-giving love of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.